0: hey everyone welcome back to the jacobin show i'm jen pan i'm here with paul prescott who you may have noticed has been mia for the last two weeks paul explain yourself
1: um i'm sorry i have a job you know stuff to do (laughs) But uh, last week I was at um, some of my students' uh, gradu- um, graduation, um, so that was nice, but um, it is good to be back. Um, and the graduation the
0: also means that your official job is over, so you That's now right. have no more excuses, at least That's for the right. summer.
1: Yes, I'm on yes. summer break, so you might I might look well-rested now. I hope I do, <laughs> uh, unlike times before. But yeah, so now, full commitment to The Jackman Show. I will never do anything else, ever. It's only YouTube
0: propaganda from here on out. That's right. (laughs) Um, Speaking of which, we have a great show today. Uh, Matt Chrisman, who, of course, is co-host of Chapo Trap House and a friend of the show. He's been on the channel before. He will be joining us a little later to talk about why the media sucks in a nutshell. We'll unpack that a little more when he comes on. Um, And Paul, what else is on your mind this week?
1: Well, also also will announce, people should also stick around, that Ernest Garrett, who is a uh, president of AFSME District Council 33, Municipal Workers in Philadelphia, will be coming on for a short little Labor Paul segment to talk about their contract fight, so definitely stick around after uh, Matt is done. Yeah, um, it's
0: like a very special Labor Paul episode. It
1: is, yeah, but you can still <laughs> submit Labor Paul questions that I will answer uh, next week. So, um, but yeah, an article caught my eye, and I had to talk about it. On It was almost tailor-made for The Jackman Show, but... Um,
0: The article was written just to troll you.
1: It was, I think it was. (laughs) Um, Combined all elements education, identity, Koch brothers. So, this this interesting article in the New Yorker that um, talks about this strange new alliance between black parents who are advocating for homeschooling and the Koch backed uh, Walton Foundation. And so, there's been this sharp rise in homeschooling since the start of the pandemic. um, And it actually shows that, especially among black families more so than white families. And I think this makes sense given, you know, the limits of virtual learning, why parents would, might choose to be doing this at this time. And the article also goes into other reasons that um, beyond the pandemic, why black parents might be turning to homeschooling, like uh, bad experiences in public and charter schools, mm-hmm. um, their children being frequently punished, bullying, etc. And so it, it uh, profiles this parent, Bernita, who um, talks about the experience of homeschooling her child and how positive it's been. Um, And I think it makes sense that homeschooling could be very good for parents and children. I mean, your child gets the full undivided attention. You can tailor the curriculum to one individual very specifically, which is impossible in an under-resourced public school that has like over 34 kids in the classroom. So Bernita, this parent, wanted to form her own homeschooling collective. And so the problem is where she got the money from. And so in the article, as it says, um, in August 2020... Bernita applied for and won a twenty five thousand dollar grant from Carrie Rodriguez group, the National Parents Union, to fund a homeschooling collective called Engage Detroit. The National Parents Union paid for the grant money grant with money from Vela Education Fund, which is backed by the Walton Family Foundation and the Charles Koch Institute. These groups advocate quote school choice, rerouting money in families away from traditional public schools through such means as charter schools, which are publicly funded but privately managed, and vouchers, which allow public education dollars to be put towards private school tuition. And this is kind of interesting because in the 1980s, homeschooling was championed actually mostly by white evangelicals. But recently, groups like the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, they've diversified, they've hired black and Latino consultants. As to now, these wealthy opponents of public education, like the Koch Uh, brothers or brother now um have found um you know they found another opportunity to kind of cloak their agenda in this seemingly anti-racist way and so you know the point here is not to beat up on parents who are trying to make the best of their dilemma but i think we need to point out how you have this insidious situation where the failures of school privatization are being used to justify even more privatization Mm -hmm. and so the article also goes into um it says, I, I asked Keisha, who was another black parent who was uh, profiled, if it bothered her to accept money from the conservative libertarian Coke family, who has spent vast sums of their fortune advocating for lower taxes, deep cuts to social services, and looser environmental regulations. She says, I guess the bigger question is, why don't we have enough resources so that we don't have to get money from them? It bothers me, yes, but why do they have so much money that they get to fund all of our shit, she asks. I shouldn't have to get resources from the Cokes." And in a sense, she is totally right. No one should have to get funding from the Kochs. But by doubling down on school choice, whether through charter schools or through um, homeschooling, we move farther and farther away from being able to get the funding we need to improve public education. And again, the enemy here is not parents who decide to homeschool their children. But I think we can all, all agree that the vast majority of kids are not going to be homeschooled. This, that's not a viable solution to the problems of our education system. But it's really an insidious example of, you know, institutions like the Walton Foundation, you know, and they, the Gates Foundation as well, they pour all this money into charter schools and to destroy public ed. They destroyed it. And then they provide money to the people who are victims of this Mm -hmm. to implement their solutions. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what's so interesting about this is because the article actually does criticize charter schools as well. And, you know. Actually, charter schools are known for being more strict on discipline. And a lot of times this affects black and brown students more so than public schools. And so it's like now it's like the ultimate privatized solution of just do it at home. No and,
0: school at uh, all. Right. <laughs> no, and our, I'm kidding. <laughs>
1: well, and I'm sure, you know, they're packaging like their own, you know, curriculum that can be sold, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to and have these programs on their laptops. Um, so it's a really insidious situation. I, I thought we should uh, highlight it.
0: Yeah. I, you know, 100 agree, 100% agree with what you're saying. Um, and actually, I wanted to shout out an article by Megan Erickson, who I know is on the education episode that I sadly missed. One of her earliest articles for Jacobin is called The Case for Cinderblocks. Uh, it's a very classic, like, early Jacobin article. And it basically makes the argument that you just made against uh, homeschooling, even when it's, you know, uh, branded as anti-racist, or even when it's branded as progressive or radical or anarchist. Uh, she goes into some of the same problems that you just talked about right and i also want to touch on um the fact that this story appeared in the new yorker and and how lots of stories like this are appearing in the media recently right especially during the pandemic and you know you have kind of this year of racial reckoning um the system uh, the public school system has obviously been thrown into chaos uh Racism is on people's minds. Um, we know from polling and statistics that lots of black and brown families, you know, were more hesitant than their white counterparts to send their children back to school, obviously during the pandemic, but then, of course, compounded with some of the issues that you just mentioned. Um, And, you know, I've, I've said this to you before, actually, like I have come across so many articles lately, I feel like, that are very much in this vein. Um, so there was a recent one in The New York Times about uh, the rise of African Afrocentric charter schools, right? Uh, I think, you know, back to something that you just said, I think in the 90s and the 2000s, the kind of like race targeted charter school was a very no excuses, sort of militaristic, like pull up your pants. Like that was the kind of charter school that was trying to target black families. Right. Um, and there seems to be a new update on that, which is like the Afrocentric charter school. That's like, we're all black here. Like we tell kids to love their skin and love their hair. And, you know, we play Beyonce's formation. Um, this was actually in the New York Times article article, by the way. So I'm not just like dropping in like, I don't know, like false information or whatever. Um, And then, you know, the article that you pointed out on black homeschooling, um, and I've seen an article in The Nation recently about, uh, it it was written by a black mother and a journalist who was like, I choose to send my child to predominantly black schools because I want her to, you know, feel proud of herself and like not be subject to racism and, uh, you know, see teachers who look like her and so on and so forth. Um, And like you were saying, like, None of this is to blame the parents who are obviously just making what they feel to be the best decision for their children. Um this is not a criticism of them in any way whatsoever, but I do think it's interesting that the media seems to be so enraptured by this type of story, right? Because on the one hand, um as you've suggested, the the, the charter school the charter the charter school model and the homeschool model really dovetail with this kind of neoliberal assault on public education. So even when it kind of has this progressive gloss, it's still unfortunately sort of uh, bolstering this ideology of the free market, of privatization, of, you know, turning away from this idea of public goods. Right. And just to kind of drive that home further, um, I don't know if you know this economist, Rucker Johnson, he's over at Berkeley. um, And he basically has done like decades of research on school integration. Hmm. So he looked at, you know, some of the big pushes to integrate schools in the late 70s and the early 80s. And I think when we I think we actually don't talk a lot about integration these days, we hear a lot about segregation, right? Because there's been extreme resegregation of schools. Uh, And so, you know, Uh, The New York City school district, for example, is like extremely highly segregated. I'm sure Philadelphia's is, too. Um, And and so so I think that oftentimes a lot of what we hear is like integration failed or like, you know, we still have segregation. And it's true that schools are still very segregated. But I think what's really interesting about Rucker Johnson's research is he really makes the point that school integration worked it just was stopped too early and didn't right. go far enough, right? So what he did in his study is he basically followed um, – like a couple different families in a study and looked at them, looked at the kids from when they had attended desegregated schools to through to their adult lives. And he basically found that on almost every measure, high school graduation, college graduation, income, you know, uh, uh, what else? Uh, uh, Lack of contact with the criminal justice system. Black kids who had attended integrated schools did much better off later in life. I mean, I don't think that's like a huge surprise. Um, and when he talks about integration, he's like, it's not just desegregation. So it's not just putting black and white kids in proximity to each other. Although you know that is good, but it's also because integration has to do with money, right? It has to do right. with uh, redistribution redistribution of resources or or uh, gathering them or pooling them in a different way. And it also has to do with preschool. So he's saying that thre- these three th- these three things desegregation, money, and preschool basically make a huge difference in the lives of kids uh and also that these effects are basically so strong that even the kids of the kids who went to desegregated schools did better in life when he followed up with them and that should make sense too because if the kids who went to desegregated schools you know obtained higher incomes had higher levels of education like we know from everything we know about social science that their kids are going to be doing better too and i bring up that example because um His solutions, uh, money, preschool, and desegregation, I think are actually very boring, right? Like, they're not very spicy. They're
1: they're also the old, I mean, this is like the old civil rights movement solutions, you know? And and actually in this article in the New Yorker, they also talk about, I mean, some of the black parents being torn because they knew historically, you know, how important public ed was for integration Mm -hmm. and also the fear that, you know, They know that the more that they take their kids out of the public school system, that's going to hurt existing kids in the public right. school system you know
0: right so there's like a lot of conflict about that right yeah yeah but I mean so that goes to my next point which is you know these solutions are very old school which is a, a much nicer way of saying like a little bit boring right because we've heard we've heard about them since at least the 60s um but they're also really difficult so that's kind of a fatal combination for being like uh sensational in the media right like it's not very interesting because we've heard them time and time again but it's also really difficult to achieve because you, you cannot achieve any of those things without basically a mass movement, right? But I think, you know, part of the reason why uh, this other type of story kind of catches fire in the media uh, very quickly, and that's the type of story, uh, you know, that we were just talking about, like Black homeschools, like these alternative schooling models. Um, I've also seen a lot of stories about, you know, um Uh, Some of the kids who were the first to integrate public schools who are now saying, like, well, this was actually deeply traumatic, which, like, again, is not a surprise. And, like, that's not on the kids. Like, obviously, if you are on the front lines of the integration effort, like, that's going to be really difficult. Um, But. These are kind of the opposite of the Rucker-Johnson study because they're they're not boring, right? Like they're highly emotionally evocative. They seem to present a solution that's more readily available than unfortunately the like arduous and very difficult work of movement building, mass movement building. Um, and, uh, you know, then there's the third factor, which is that they do, as I said before, kind of uncomfortably dovetail with the predominant neoliberal ideology. Um, and again, that's not to call call. call the people who participate in these alternative schooling systems neoliberal or whatever. Like, that's obviously not the point. What I'm trying to look at here is why they why the media loves them.
1: Right. And, you know, a a critical line, and I think a lot of people don't quite realize this about charter schools. I mean, they're publicly funded. So Mm -hmm. they literally are siphoning off money from the public school districts. Um, and, And this helps to further stratify Uh, stratify the the districts, not again, not just, um, you know, financially, economically, but by race, you know, so Mm -hmm. it really is all part of that same story. And I mean, we have this ridiculous situation in Philly, where the average age of our public school buildings are about 80 years old, I've talked about in the show, lead, mold, asbestos, leaky roofs, all that. And all these new brand new shiny charter school buildings are being built with public money. So literally, public school district money (laughs) is funneled for its own destruction, essentially. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I think, and it is kind of confusing. A lot of people don't quite realize that. And so how that, and that's why, you know, public school teachers unions are so adamant about charter schools. Again, it's mm-hmm. not about blaming those parents or those kids or even those teachers. I mean, there's charter school right. teachers that are unionizing. But overall, if you look at where the money is, who is backing them, you kind of mm-hmm. will see what the agenda is.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I'm just wondering, from your perspective, as obviously a union member um, and, and a public school teacher and an opponent of chartered schools, have you found a good way of countering uh, the, the, the narrative that charter schools are better, are anti-racist or like they're better for black students because public schools have failed so miserably at integration?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think most most regular people who are not so ideologically committed to charter schools. I kind of like that parent who at the end of the article said like, I know this sucks. Like we shouldn't be getting, having to get this money. Like most people I talk to, if I say like ultimately like we wouldn't need charters if we Mm -hmm. adequately funded existing schools. I I mean, honestly for most people, you know, even if they do send their kids to a charter, it's, it's from a very pragmatic basis of like, look, my neighborhood public school sucked. This seemed better. It is a little better. So I think for most people, it resonates that we should just fund the existing schools. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing, and this might dovetail to what you might be talking about next with, um, you know, critical race theory is that um, I think something to highlight, I'm going to be very on brand here, is highlighting the the role that unions can play in this because, um, you know, unions, teachers unions can take the lead on, like, advocating for better curriculum because, you know, a lot of times in certain districts, teachers actually don't have much of a choice to do curriculum that might be better, um, or more creative. Mm-hmm. Um, they can also take the lead on insisting on different disciplinary measures, um, you know, and things like that. Or just in general, I mean, if, if, we got what we wanted as teachers, which is better staffing, lower class sizes, you would see less behavioral issues and less, you know, discriminatory, uh, disciplining. Um, so I think all these, these ways are ways of countering, but I do think for most people like, they understand that we can and should just fund our existing mm-hmm. institutions, and right. then people wouldn't have to make these difficult decisions.
0: Right. Again, it's it's just such a hard choice, because if you're a parent and it's like, this charter school seems like a better opportunity literally next year, whereas obviously rebuilding public schools could right. take longer than my kid is even going to be in school, exactly. it's it's really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you said the magic words, critical race theory. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to briefly touch on the ongoing critical race theory, uh, brouhaha scandal that's been plaguing the media for the last several weeks. Um, Actually, if any of you were watching The Jacobin Show from the beginning, you might remember that for our very first episode, we had had Vivek Chibber on, and he actually gave a really succinct and really wonderful uh, definition and uh, explanation of why critical race theory is not a Marxist plot, as Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson have uh, so frequently screeched. Uh, So if you want to watch him kind of give that rundown, um, check in our archives. It's there, and it's really good, and I highly recommend it. Um, but what I want to focus on today is actually a little different from that. Um, I want to look at the media response to the critical theory, the critical race theory debate. Right. Uh, because as you guys probably know, there has been a lot of ongoing discussion about critical race theory because, um, first of all, you know, Donald Trump. Kind of famously set off the sparks when he uh, declared that the federal government would no longer be able to um, sort of teach or you know do these critical race what he called critical race theory you know pseudo Marxist trainings in federal offices. Right. Uh, since then, a bunch of Republican state legislators have sort of followed suit and are now introducing a host of bills to ban critical race theory from being taught. Uh, in public schools, um, so I, I do want to say off the bat that um, just based on what I've been reading, it kind of sounds like these bills won't go very far. Um, the consensus among legal experts seems to be that it's just grandstanding. Um, they're you know they really won't hold up in court or they'll be struck down. Um, I can't comment on that myself. I obviously like don't have a legal background to say whether that will happen or not happen. Um, So that part is to be continued. Uh, But like I said, I want to look at some of the liberal media responses to the critical theory, uh, critical race theory debate. So first I wanna look at a tweet from Timothy Snyder who of course is a liberal historian who has published many books. He recently wrote, critical race theory is common sense with an awkward name. Uh, so I now want to go through, uh, quite a few other, uh, media responses to the ongoing critical race theory debate, because I think that they're really instructive and you'll have to bear with me because there's kind of a lot, but I want to go through all of them to like, sort of make a point. Okay. So I think the first one that we have is, let's see, the Atlantic, Um, So Adam Harris writes for Republicans, the end goal of all these bills is clear, initiating another battle in the culture wars and holding on to some threadbare mythology of the nation that has been challenged in recent years. Okay, next we have the nation. They write uh, what's important to understand is that conservatives are always trying to do this. Uh, You know, they're always trying to keep some aspect of American history, some reckoning with the way this country has treated black and brown people or women or LGBT people or indigenous people out of schools Um, I think he oh, yeah, he goes on to say it's always important to them that white children are kept ignorant about the details of how white people came to enjoy such power and wealth in a land they ain't even from. Keeping white kids dumb is as American as apple pie. Let's go on to the next one. I think it's uh, what is it? This is, yes, this is Business Insider. They write, The GOP campaigns against critical race theory, which distorts the concept, is linked to a broader effort to stifle or invalidate conversations on the pervasiveness of racism in the U.S. in relation to its history. Let's move on to the next one. What do we have? (laughs) Uh, This is from The New Yorker. Banning critical race theory seeks to, quote, establish a protective halo around white students so that they do not have to hear that their success might have something to do with their race or that the structures of racial power and privilege in the past also apply to the present. On to the next one. Conservatives have appropriated critical race theory as a convenient catch-all to describe basically any serious attempt to teach the history of race and racism. That's in Vox. Uh, Do we have one more? Oh, yes, of course. Here's from MSNBC commentator Joanne Reed. So she's saying, what the CRT hysterics are essentially saying, literally without knowing what critical race theory is, is that teachers must not ask whether we have arrived via slavery and its aftermath at an unequal society. And even if we have, it's only fair that we freeze it there. Okay, so why did I go through all of these examples of liberal media personnel uh, kind of entering the critical race theory debate? The reason is this. I think that they're all really similar, right? So what all of them do is, first of all, they talk about how critical race theory is just this culture war ploy by the Republicans. And that's of course true. Um, but. I guess what I would say to the charge that Republicans are ginning up yet another culture war is, is the Pope Catholic, right? I mean, they're always doing this. Uh, We talk about this on the show all the time. So yes, the Republicans are trying to use critical race theory to gin up a culture war. However, I think what's interesting about the liberal response is that they all seem to take the bait, right? Like they enter the culture war, like, Completely no holds barred. Um, So if you look at the examples that I just ran through, and of course, you know, other examples that you can find basically just like anywhere you look in the news, um, the liberal response to Republicans sort of takes, you know calling, calling, trying to call it out as, as a culture war. Um, but then also they do this thing where they're like, well, Republicans don't actually know what critical race theory is. And again, this is true, but I think that in, in many cases, it comes off again as like a culture war shot because it's like very pedantic. Like, well, the Republicans didn't read kiberly Crenshaw's 1981 text and the seventh footnote on the 26th page where she says X, Y, and Z. And I mean, again, true, but I don't think that that is a convincing way to uh, to convince anybody who, you know, is confused about what critical race theory is. Right. And then the third thing, uh, which I think was really apparent in all of the examples I showed, is that um, with critical race theory or, or the response seems to be like to go back to Timothy Snyder's tweet. Critical race theory is just common sense by a complicated name. Like what liberals are saying is that the kind of catch-all, uh, ideology and catch-all texts that Republicans are calling critical race theory are just common sense. We, we, Republicans don't want to talk about race. Republicans don't want to talk about racism. Republicans don't want to talk about slavery, right? And again, I think that there is an element of truth there, but the thing is, talking the, the the types of language and the types of discourse that these liberals are defending, which are things like white fragility, like the concept of white privilege, the 1619 Project, these are not the only ways of understanding uh, racism and the, sla- the history of slavery in the U.S., right? And I just want to quickly shout out Matt Carp's recent article in Harper's. It's really good. Um, you guys should definitely check it out. History as End. He provides a really good rundown of how exactly liberals use the 1619 Project to uh, to obscure a class project, to kind of advance uh, their own liberal ideology, um, and that there's actually many ways of understanding history from the left. Uh, lots of Marxist historians have had criticisms of the 1619 Project, right? So I, I, I guess I want to just wrap up by saying that, you know, if Democrats and liberals were actually interested in taking the wind out of Republican sails when it comes to critical race theory, they would say this, they would be like, while the Republicans are becoming hysterical about a totally obscure thing that nobody understands or cares about, we want to, pun- we want to fund public schools. We want to raise teacher pay. We want to tax billionaires who have made a killing during the pandemic. We want to fix our crumbling infrastructure, right? I mean, that would be the way, I think, to diffuse the so-called culture war that liberals say that they're concerned about, too. But I think at the end of the day, the culture war serves Democrats and the culture war serves the liberal media as well. Um, So I don't know. Maybe, Paul, do you have thoughts (laughs) on critical race theory?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because... Kind of like you alluded to, you know, when Republicans say that, are, do they mean the technical academic concept or do they mean just talking about race in general? And of course, like, you know, obviously uh, teachers, especially if we're teaching history or social studies, you need to be addressing race somehow. And obviously, mm-hmm. no, whether it's critical race theory or not, you know, no Republican legislators should be controlling what teachers, you know, teach in the classroom. Right. Um, but, you know, and, and I think there are in some in, in, in some ways like you know in Pennsylvania some of our left-wing state legislators have been good about you know at the same time that this is going on they're pushing for a bill to use federal stimulus money to rebuild our broken public schools mm-hmm. um, and they've been able to frame this in a good way of like look at these Republicans talking about critical race theory while we are trying to rebuild these schools which right. by the way I mean Pennsylvania mm-hmm. Some of the worst schools are also in these uh, poor white rural areas. Yeah. So I think that's a great reframing. But, um, yeah, it, it starts to get a little tricky because you don't even know what they mean by critical race theory anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's like, as a teacher, of course, I want to oppose this because I don't want anyone controlling yeah. what I'm doing. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, this sort of a lot of these media outlets, for example, MSNBC, like while they're clear on this, they're not really clear about charter schools, for example. Like, I think. <laughs> right. They, and as we know, you know, the Obama administration in the past have been totally fine with that. Or at least, you know, and again, there's some nuance to that discussion, but like they don't really do much to point out how that's hurting public ed in in, in different ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know. Going off what you said, I think in the case of somebody like Joy Ann Reid, like she probably doesn't want to do the things that I said that Democrats should be talking about instead of critical race theory. Right. Like, I think that she doesn't support Medicare for all, as far as I know. Um, and uh, she you know, has been a, a, a staunch and vocal opponent of Bernie style politics from the very beginning. Um, so. To answer my own rhetorical question of, like, why aren't Democrats or liberals doing this? I think some of them, A, really enjoy being part of the culture war or, like, get something out of it, whether that's, you know, uh, uh, financial or even just, like, internet clout or whatever. Um, But also, like, some of them probably don't believe in the project that I said they should be promoting instead. So there's that. Um, And I guess – so. Before we bring on Matt, I, I just want to make one last point about kind of this ongoing imbroglio over, you know, teaching history in schools. And that is that I, I do also feel like a lot of the recent discourse around critical race theory uh, from the liberals who are sort of defending it against the Republicans sometimes suggest that radical or alternative history has just like never been taught in schools before. And that um that like the 1619 project was the first time that, like, public school children could have ever heard about slavery, right? I'm, like, exaggerating a little bit, but that is very much the tone that I think comes across in a lot of, you know, the fervent pushback against these Republican bills. Like, well, kids really need to know about slavery and, like, need to know about the truth about race and racism in America. And, you know, history, of, of course, thanks to American federalism, like history in every state, of course, in public schools is different, you know? And there are good and bad things that are sort of being pushed out there. Um, but just on an anecdotal level, like I've mentioned before on the show that I grew up in Boise, Idaho, uh, you know, during the Bush years, which is like the most deepest red of the red states out there, at least it was back then. And in my public school history class, we read Howard Zinn. That wasn't right. the only thing we read. We, we had a little bit of Zinn. We had the, you know, a standard US history textbook, and then we had a conservative text. And the point, obviously, in class was to be like, oh, well, like, here, like, different, you know, competing accounts of history or whatever. And I will say, to be perfectly honest, a lot of the parents didn't like Zinn. A lot of the kids themselves didn't like Zinn. Of course, you know, like I said, this was in the kind of 9 11, like, Bush yeah. War on Terror years. So, like, jingoism and patriotism was pretty high. And actually, a group of kids in my class, like, at the end of the year, got their Zin books and, like, burned them, you know? So, like, <laughs> so this is not to say... Is there a you know, picture of is you not-
1: burning a Zin book, Jen? Come on. Be-
0: no, I I have gone on record saying that I love Zin. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, yeah. And, you know, and, I mean, this is totally anecdotal. And, again, I don't mm-hmm. deny it all that I'm sure there are many places where, like, there are yeah. bad controls over curriculum and things are not mm-hmm. taught that should be. But, mm-hmm. honestly, a, a constant reframe I hear from my students and... I teach African-American history as well as, Mm -hmm. you know, some other classes. And a lot of times I'll do a general survey thing at the beginning of the year about their history classes, what they've liked in the past. And I constantly hear, especially when black students is I'm tired of hearing about slavery. And what they mean by that is like, I'm tired of hearing that that's the only thing, you know, in black history. Of course, I'm not saying I'm sure they're not saying we shouldn't learn about slavery. But just to kind of say that, you know, in certain settings, I think it is taught a lot. And I've actually Mm -hmm. been kind of pleasantly surprised um at least in philly a lot of social studies teachers use zen pretty regularly mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. and right. you know
1: final point i'll just again emphasize that you know teachers unions have a big role in the curriculum like my union offers professional development for teachers mm-hmm. as an alternative to the really shitty ones the district does um and they're generally very good especially the social studies ones mm-hmm. so just don't you know forget the role of the teachers unions in that yeah. as well
0: yeah yeah Um, I was gonna say I I know you personally are always talking to your kids about A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin, so like we can't we can't pretend that there's no radical history. (laughs) That's right. Um, That's gonna be
1: what they say instead of they're tired of hearing about slavery, they're tired of hearing about A. Philip Randolph. Sorry.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, I think on that note, uh, let's bring out Matt Chrisman. Everybody knows Matt Chrisman as a co-host of Chapo Trap House. He's been on the Jacobin Channel multiple times before. Matt, how's it going?
3: Good. How you doing?
0: Pretty all right. (laughs) So today, today's topic, of course, uh, as you know, uh, why the media totally sucks. Um, and I, you know, was I, I got thinking about this topic because I recently came across a like, big survey that Gallup and the Knight Foundation had done. I think it was last year, but they basically found that public trust in the media is lower than it's ever been, which I think will not be a surprise to anybody. Oh, actually, we're going to talk about this graph a little later. Um, but <laughs> um, basically, public trust in the media is lower than it's ever been. Of course, we know that it's been declining pretty precipitously, probably since the 60s, right? But I think also if you talked to five different people, you would get five different answers about why the media sucks so bad. Um, I think the I think the ones that you hear most often are, number one, that there is extreme bias. Right. Number two, that elites control the media. Uh n- I think some people say that it causes, you know, division and polarization. Um, And uh, a lot of people complain that it's just infotainment, like it's not news anymore. It's just, you know, fluff. And I think that all of those things are true to a certain degree. And I would argue that they're all related to the class composition of the media, which I think we should get into later. But your eyes widened just now. So I want to ask you, what's the worst thing about the media today?
3: I mean, obviously... You know, at a structural level, the worst thing about the media is that it's a capitalist enterprise. And mm-hmm. so its logics are completely dominated by capitalism. And that really is the, the wellspring of most of the really, like, serious dysfunctions. I mean, obviously, the media has always been uh, a, a captured institution of, of capital in some way or another. But, you know, previous generations, there was, enough, there was enough system to allow for at least the illusion of people doing a job. As an, as as like you know a, a craft mm-hmm. uh, that people were invested in, uh, but now you know yeah the 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 taking of something that is kind of by definition a public good you know like a, 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 a uh, the transmission of information which you know should be as as you know removed from uh, politics and, and and economics as it can be mm-hmm. uh, capitalism has now removed those. Those fails. Uh, uh, and now it's purely being instrumentalized, which means it's purely being driven by the same logic of viewer retention that the rest of the media is dominated by, which means there can't be any other pursuit other than eyeballs. And that means every idea, every pretension of journalistic integrity is actually suborned to eyeballs. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's the thing that none of them, no one involved in it can say, which means you now have a media that's composed entirely of uh, you know, uh, careerists and hobbyists, people who yeah. either are fully devoted to their media career as their identity uh, uh, and are lashed to the mast of it or, or are doing it essentially as a lark and are generally comfortable scions of American wealth.
0: Yeah, so I want to pause on that for a minute um, because I have this really amazing quote by the journalist Robert Caro. Uh, so this is, this is in The New Yorker, and he was talking about his first investigative journalist job. Uh, let me pull it up here. Uh, so he's talking about his editor here at Newsday, which was the Long Island newspaper he worked for in his first job. And he writes, We were never actually sure if he, meaning the editor, had actually graduated from or even attended college, but he had a deep prejudice against graduates of prestigious universities and during his last years at Newsday... "'had never hired one, let alone one from Princeton, as I was. Uh, "'I was hired as a joke on him while he was on vacation. "'He was so angry to find me there "'that during my first weeks on the job, "'he would refuse to acknowledge my presence in his city room.'" Um, I love that quote because he's obviously working in the 60s, right? Um, And so this is like a totally different time when, of course, you had a a much more robust kind of um, local newspaper ecosystem that could actually have non-college graduates working there. And I think, to me, this idea that like a newsroom would be like, we don't want a Princeton grad is like kind of amazing because you would never see that now, right? Um, Oh, God. Yeah. I'm going to say,
1: what an incredible world that must be. know.
0: (laughs) That editor sounds cool, by the way. Um, but I also want to show now another thing from the Gallup poll that I was I was uh, referencing earlier, because this is where we are at at the media today. Actually, this isn't from the Gallup poll. This is from an Intercept article that's using a study uh, that some academics did on the class composition of the media. Um, so this graph... Basically looks at, if you can see House members, uh, millionaires, federal judges, Fortune 500 CEOs, and shows what percentage of them went to elite schools, right? So in the House, it's around 20%, uh, federal judges is 40%. But then if you look at New York Times editors and writers, which is a few bars down, 43, almost 44% went to elite schools. Uh, Forbes billionaires, very, you know, very similar, uh, around 44%. If you look at Wall Street Journal, editors and writers around uh, almost 50% went to elite schools and then <laughs> the new republic editors and writers this is like from a few new republics ago but like nevertheless 64% of editors and writers on the masthead went to elite schools so again this is just a completely different world from from you know the Robert Caro being shunned for being a Princeton grad um and I guess I want to ask you Matt um you know, this goes back to what you were saying about uh, the media being at heart a capitalist institution. Um, But there's kind of this like old school vulgar Marxist idea that the media is an arm of the ruling class. What do you make of that? Do you agree?
3: Oh, I think it is. And the thing about those old blue collar journalists is that they served up propaganda just as heartily as modern journalists do. Uh, That was their job. And it's always their job. But The difference is that they were able to provide, because of their sort of heterogeneous uh, uh, class composition and dedication to like this abstract notion of, you know, the news as a a separate thing from like the emotive personal, uh, you know, social entrepreneurship of celebrity, uh, that that imparted on what they said a, a consensus reality that everybody on the political spectrum could sort of work off of and that allowed for you to get ahead if you were trying to make a Marxist argument somewhere, because it was in the context of a shared reality. The real consequence of having this uh, fully uh, elite institution uh, captured media now is that they're compelled beyond their desire to do so, to create a totally insular media ecosystem that revolves around social liberalism
2: Mm -hmm.
3: and, as like as an existential as an existential element, uh, like because these people, are, it's not that they went to college to, learn to be a, a, a journalist. It's that they learnt, went to college to learn how to see themselves as journalists, how to incorporate journalists into their self-identity. And it was as, uh, as a profession, as an expression of one's virtue, as a way to live in, in life, a well-renumerated, creative, fulfilling uh, job that also made you feel like a good person. And that was being in the media and only certain people are going to ring to that dinner bell. And they are increasingly people who are wedded to expressing uh, in their uh, work a, a social liberal agenda because that's what makes them a good person. And things get worse and worse. They feel more and more compelled to do it. But that guarantees that we broke the consensus reality, which means that everything that you can muster to try to get attention is going to fall on either deaf or already converted ears. And what you're saying was all, is only to be uh, filed, not to be engaged with. We're at a point where people have fully fractured their reality so that when they encounter an idea, an argument, uh, a, a fact, it is only judged by whether or not it is on their side or not. And then that's it. And it's either used as ammunition or it's uh, rejected. There is no engagement with it. And that is the real tragedy of it. And, of course, it's not anyone's discrete decision to do this. Mm -hmm. It is just the end result of the media being fully capitalized.
1: And so it seems like, you know, ever since the 1960s and the new left, the the left increasingly has focused on the media as a, you know, terrain of activity, of struggle in general. You know, what do you think has led to this shift of focus to the media among the left?
3: I think that there's a – that
1: people – And then there's sometimes, as I think, a category
3: error that comes when people then apply agency to that and say, oh, Mm -hmm. the left made this decision to to go to culture. Water finds its own level. As political avenues closed, those political energy went where it could be accepted, and that was in the culture. Okay, you're not going to overthrow the government, but you could get a job uh, with the African-American Studies Department at City College. You can get a job writing for a TV show. You can get a job being an educator. And then w- with the other areas foreclosed, with no profitable uh, uh, effort to be done that will do anything other than get you uh, chased around by the FBI, why wouldn't you do that? And so then the, 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 the center of gravity moved away from the, the fight because the fight had been lost in a way that nobody really recognized at the time. By the end of the 70s, the, the political fight of the working class as as, a, as an element of America's political uh, and social reality foreclosed. Its ability to be a counter-hegemonic force was foreclosed. But we're still around. We still have to fucking live. And we live in a world then where the, uh, the motor of, of class conflict has been detached from our social conceptions of things like class and are only reproduced by a culture that is generated in elite institutions.
0: I uh, I want to follow that up by asking you your thoughts on uh, I guess what I'll call the alternative media, which I know sounds super 90s, but I just can't figure out like what else to call it. And I, I'm asking because all of us on screen basically work in it to some degree, right? Because I'm thinking here of like YouTube shows, obviously, uh, podcasts, obviously. I know there's been a lot of discussion and scandal over the rise of Substack and newsletters. Um, and I want to pause and like Talk about the mainstream media's react or the traditional media's reaction to these kinds of like different or independent or alternative forms of media, because in my opinion, or at least from what I've seen, it sort of takes two forms, right? So the first is extreme hostility. So, you know, that's why there was this big scandal over the rise of Substack and like people's newsletters or whatever, as far as I could tell. Um, your own show, Chapo, I think has uh, more than once been kind of on the receiving end of some sort of media ire about. About how you are like espousing some sort of reactionary ideas um actually the favorite my favorite thing my favorite criticism of chapo is that it's somehow a scam as though like your subscribers are signing up for like they're like directly paying for like the revolution or something but instead yeah, they just got scary, like yeah. a I joke i thought i was paying for like a podcast
1: I thought it was like an Ethiopian princess or something that was trying to <laughs> right. save. Yeah. That's what I Yeah, and like I,
0: I just like got this audio file, like Felix is making jokes. I don't know. Yeah, so <laughs> that's my favorite one. But anyway, the point being that like there seems to be on one hand this kind of intense hostility, which I think at least part of is sort of the traditional media uh, uh, expressing some kind of anxiety about losing a little bit of its gatekeeper status, right? Um, So there's that. But then I think there's actually uh, what's maybe a more interesting phenomenon, which is that the traditional media, as its viewership is steadily declining, now has to compete with things like YouTube channels. And I'm not don't worry, I'm not talking about this one, but I'm thinking of like Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty's new channel, which has hundreds of thousands of subscribers already or like Kyle Kolinsky or like even like Michael Brooks's show when he was he was on, you know, or like the Young Turks or something. All of these alternative media networks have way bigger audiences than, like, Harper's Magazine or, like, you know, The New Republic or The Nation. Um, And yet the traditional media outlets uh, either don't acknowledge – it's not that they don't acknowledge them. They don't know about them. I mean, when I worked at The New Republic, uh, you know – Nobody knew about Kyle Kalinsky, had barely heard of the Young Turks, you know, did not have any idea of this kind of alternative media network. And, like, at the same time, like, if you were just to compare views, like, those other channels are doing way, way better. So I'm wondering what you make of that weird division or, like, the mainstream media response to the rise of alternative media. And then maybe a follow-up question to that is, like, what can the role of alternative alternative media be other than a, a thorn in the side of traditional media? <laughs>
3: Uh, I think that's always going to be what it mostly is. It's it's yeah. a way to afflict the comfortable among the media class because you aren't accountable to anybody. I mean, that is the fundamental source of the ire uh, towards alternative media is that you can't get anybody fired, which is the, the signal piece of social discipline in market right and that's what these people live in like that, that they, they've now created a free market everyone within it thinks they're some sort of communist or socialist or, or uh fdr liberal but in reality they are living in the actual cutthroat knife edge of capitalism within uh of uh the meat like the media uh class like they actually are fighting tooth and nail at the end of this thing because the media pie is shrinking uh and they're all and they're all fighting to the death but they think they're doing it on the co- on, on behalf of you know the the, the human race when are really doing it for their own advancement, but they have confused the two. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, that's the main thing that they don't like about uh, the alternative media is because they aren't subject to their disciplinary regime. And so they get to say things that they would like to say maybe or they don't want to hear. And so they are just resentful. But at the same time, you know, uh, it really does highlight that, yeah, as you say, there's much more viewership on a lot of these alternative things but it doesn't really move the needle in mm. in the traditional space and it certainly isn't anything being consumed by the most politically consequential people in this country uh older voters for example uh they're absolutely disengaged with this and the most uh alienated uh subjects of capitalism in america who might be the the uh clay the 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 forming soil of like a new uh like radical uh political counter-mobilization of this country, they're not paying attention to it either. It really is still, it's the same class of media consumer who really just wants to hear what they want to hear. Uh, and that is the kind of the trap that we all get caught into is, is that at a certain point, you are acting uh, as like a as a therapist for people in the sense that they're going to pay for what they want to hear. Yeah. And so that ends up being the division within it. Not You're not being uh, uh, ordered around by... Uh, you know, an editor or by a board advertisers, but you are at a certain level, some way, either conscious or unconscious being controlled by what your audience share is. And that's going to be determined less by your ability to persuade people than of your uh, attractiveness to them as a consumer object. And so that really does mean that our, our ability to extend beyond an echo chamber and sort of reinforce existing patterns is minimal uh, so the question becomes what do we actually communicate like do we do we engage, do we communicate something, something to people that will make them in the rest of their life in things that matter make it wrong or, or ill informed decisions uh or will they act with, with some sort of uh uh you know clear uh vision of this of what's in front of them? and and that might come down to something that we tell them and i guess that's just what we all have to tell ourselves is that at the end of the day, we are providing fodder, we're providing little slivers of experience or memory or argument that might catch somebody at the right moment and in a different direction. That enough people doing that, combined with the rapidly changing conditions that we're living under, moving people around and making people start considering things that they never would have thought possible before, that that combination of people will have an effect, will be able to start exerting actual coordinated social uh, power on the scene and change the calculus
1: of capitalism so as a follow-up i mean maybe you might just give the similar answer but you know so we can agree you know what we're doing in the left media sphere is not really politics it's not the main political task so like i mean what is our role especially in a time i think maybe we can also agree it's a period of defeat and retreat right now for for the left to put it mildly i mean so what what is our role like what what are we doing i would say broadly
3: like, obviously, the, 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 you could just t- reduce it to tautology, just do a good job, like, do, <laughs> like say good things uh, persuasively, that, say the best but like
2: more, more helpfully, you know, uh,
3: uh, uh, something you could actually carry with you. Uh, whenever you're dealing with a question, whether you're dealing with a topic, whatever is coming up that people want to see addressed or that you want to talk about, ask yourself, what are the important questions?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: what are what matters in this and then talk about that and and try to before you assail, uh, assail a topic ask yourself that question instead of leading with what people want to hear about it or what's what's getting people talking or what is the source of people's ire? Because that usually is the uh, the distraction. That's usually the thing that is a question that can only exist online and that exists only to be asked eternally mm-hmm. to prevent people from directly facing the conditions of their life. And so all you can do is say, look, I know we're here, we're, we're entertaining ourselves, but we also live lives. And while we're living those lives, what matters, uh, what's happening around us that matters. And I guess that's, the closest thing, uh, a reason debt we can have.
0: I, uh, I, I want to back up a little bit and uh, turn to Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent, which I think you obliquely sort of referred to earlier in the talk. Um, and the reason I want to bring this up following from kind of this discussion of alternative media is because, I, uh, well, first of all, I want to get your thoughts on whether this model still holds up. And for anybody who's unfamiliar, I'm going to run through uh, Chomsky and Herman's propaganda model in a second. Um, but I think that maybe one of the advantages that non mainstream media has is we're not necessarily subject to all of these specific filters. So I wanna bring up this chart here. Um, this is a graphic from a Scottish illustrator named Sean Michael Wilson, uh, check him out. I think he does a lot of like left illustrated books. Um, and this is from his graphic uh, graphic novel or like graphicization, I guess, of manufacturing consent. Um, and here he uh, is looking at, oh, sorry, Kale, can you pull up the, um, yeah, the five filters? Um, so, Chomsky and Herman in manufacturing consent kind of outline. Uh, Five different filters that make up the propaganda model, which they say all information and news has to pass through before it can reach the viewer or the consumer. Right. So the first one is concentrated ownership. Um, We all know about this. I I think when Chomsky and Herman wrote the book, they were like shocked that 20 media conglomerates control basically all, uh, you know, mainstream broadcast outlets and like mass media publications. Now that number is six. So this has only gotten worse. Um, the second filter is advertising as the primary source of the uh, primary income source of the mass media. We all know this is a problem because, of course, advertisers can choose to pull their funding and pull their ads if they don't like uh, a channel or an outlet's content or if they disagree with something that outlet had said. But I think that they also exert a more soft power in that, you know. If outlets and publications see that one type of content is more advertiser-friendly or more profitable than another, they're going to be more incentivized to run that, right? Um, Okay, the third filter, reliance on information provided by, quote, expert and official sources. That's obviously, you know, uh, professional communications departments, whether that's in the state department, uh, the, the federal government, or, you know, corporations, uh, any institution these days, be it, you know, the White House or uh, a business or a nonprofit has a dedicated communications department to sort of provide the official narrative to the press. So this takes the form of like press conferences, press releases, photo ops. Basically, if you're the government or you're a corporation, you have an unlimited amount of resources that you can spend on crafting the narrative that you want to get in the media. Um, And of course. If you are the media, if you're a news outlet, you actually have a pretty limited set of resources to do investigative journalism. So that means that the press stuff or, you know, the the, quote, official narrative from the companies and the government is always going to dominate. Right. Um, So closely related to that is the fourth filter, the idea of flack as a means of disciplining the media. So this is when this is like another component of the PR apparatus whereby when the media, you know, puts out an unflattering story or, you know, says something that a company or a politician doesn't like, they have an infrastructure in place to respond. And to just give one example, when I worked at the New Republic, um, every time I wrote a critical article about uh, Amazon or about, you know, this this or that politician, immediately I would get a badgering and or threatening email from their press department, from their communications department, or from their legal department, being like, well, you should really consider that, like, actually, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos has put X, Y, and Z uh, safety mechanisms into Amazon warehouses. And the point here is, like, not that my articles were, like, so dangerous or something. They weren't, like, investigative journalism. Uh, like, honestly, like, to be honest, like, nobody was reading my articles at the New Republic. It's just just that all of these places have entire departments whose entire job is to respond to you know, is to monitor the Google alerts basically, right, and respond to any kind of negative press that they come across. Um, So that's the fourth filter. And then the last filter is an ideological one and when Herman and Chomsky wrote the book, which was in 1988, this is obviously on the eve of the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, so they identified this ideological filter as anti-communism. And I believe in recent years they They have updated that to war on terror or they've, you know, they've said things like, well, you can replace anti-communism with war on terror or even just free market at this point. Right. As sort of the like underlying ideological apparatus that shapes a lot of media narrative that we hear. Um, and so, I just wanted to quickly run through the propaganda model because I think the interesting thing about manufacturing consent, and specifically about this model in particular, is these are all structural and economic forces. So, Noam Chomsky and Herman, No uh, Edward Herman, we're not saying that there's like a giant 1984 TV that just like blaring the same message at people. I think that they're also not saying that uh, Rupert Murdoch or like whoever runs the New York Times or these like evil puppet masters who are just like. Willfully disseminating lies in order to like turn a quick buck. Um, although obviously like those people exist. Um, and I think that they're actually very generous about individual journalists as well. Um, perhaps more so than we would be, right? Like they they are very clear that lots of journalists who go into the field um, actually, as you mentioned, Matt, like think that they are doing good or like actually do actually are well intentioned or have noble intentions. But these are structural forces that shape the media um, and shape how we how we. Receive information, and I think for that reason, in my opinion, the model really holds up because those economic forces have only intensified since the '80s. In my opinion, and I guess my question to you is, uh, what do you find useful about this model? And and then if we go to the last filter, which if you remo- if you recall was the anti-communism filter, like what do you think is the new update, especially in the sort of post-Trump, post-COVID era? Uh,
3: I would say that it uh, is that the the model is most useful when talking about uh the way to explain uh the actual motives of journalists within it like how how to square the professed uh and lived belief in journalistic ethics and, and objectivity that journalists genuinely embody uh with the reality of you know their placement in this machinery and it, it is th- that uh it is that self-selecting mechanism that happens without people even being aware of it. Uh, I would say that the biggest, uh, and and then the question of what has replaced uh, anti-communism, I guess now it would be some sort of, I mean, if you're talking about like the media, uh, I it's, that's, that's an interesting question because uh, we're now at a point where the media has now like sort of fractured into this like dominant sort of democratic media and then this uh this the smaller but but equally influential among its base uh republican media and they have different enemies and mm-hmm. but those the, but the enemy is the is the hero of the other one i guess it's just it's we we've, we've turned inward right. after the after the failure of the iraq war uh, we we turned inward and now the enemy is us and it's just a question of uh which half
2: mm-hmm. and
3: so the 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 enemy now uh for uh, the the mainstream is is that like recrudescent reactionary half the Trump half, and then for the, the uh, Republican the, sh- the shard of that left and that now it's largely turning into just the internet uh, <laughs> is just uh, it's the other half. That means they're going to engage on the same superficial bullshit they're going to talk about the same culture war distractions they're going to frame everything on capitals terms because they're subject to the same incentives
1: and so i mean i think a lot of people interpret the manufacturer consent thing kind of narrowly as just brainwashing um and i think we're saying it's a little bit more nuanced to that but do you think the left and people in general overstate the power of the media i mean i think our the best excuse we love on the left, whenever a left candidate doesn't do well, or something shows that a policy we like is unpopular, you know, it's the media, people are brainwashed, blah, 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 Do you think we we overstate the power of the media, especially on, you know, maybe regular working people, not like the hyperactivated Democratic Party base?
3: Yeah, I think that the the biggest thing that it needs to be updated about the uh, manufacturing consent model is just reducing its relevance to the grand scheme of consent manufacture just because we've gotten to a point where the media is noise for most people mm-hmm. it is no longer this like fundamental organizing reality if anything for a larger and larger portion it forms the uh antithesis of the reality uh and 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 the and the vast and the, the majority of people uh uh especially the people who are feeling the the social dislocation most most profoundly, are alienated from it. They're not paying attention to it. They have disengaged from it because they have lived lives that have shown them every day that politics doesn't matter and that caring about it has to be some sort of affectation. And the thing is, it it is an affectation, uh, but it used to be an affectation that felt was easier to feel like it was substantial because there was something that looked like uh, a, a a direct relationship between how you voted and your material conditions. That's gone. Yeah. So why the hell would you vote unless it indulges something in your character, unless it's entertaining in some way? And you've got to have a certain life, a point of view. You have to have had a certain uh, acculturation to find that engaging and that well, fewer and fewer people it's true of, which means the media is just becoming, it's being tuned out and all it provides is just the fabric for people to form their own reality out of, which is what people are doing with QAnon. And uh, when I think as like people get repoliticized as things get worse, who have been de- alienated, when they come back into engagement with uh, the media, it's not going to be on the media's terms, and their reality. It's going to be by defining themselves against it and then using the broken pottery of the, the media world that they've encountered in their lives – fashioning some sort of uh antithesis to it that's going to mostly be uh some conspiracy bullshit because there is no uh, uh, uh there's no experience of of organizing a long class to complement one's understanding of the world beyond the media that they consume
0: So on that point, I I have to bring up uh, this amazing graph from the Gallup poll uh, survey that I mentioned earlier. So this looks at the... um Basically, uh, Americans trust in the media, which I said overall is is very low. But when you split it up by political party in 2020, you see a really like interesting and crazy thing, I think, where the blue line is Democrats. Obviously, 73 percent of Democrats who were polled said that they trust the media only 10% of republicans which is the red line below there said that they trust the media and then the gray line in the middle middle 36% is independents um and i and i think that's really wild and actually when i was looking at it matt i thought about uh, a distinction you've made i think a couple times of the of the difference between the party of don't be a pussy and the party of don't be an asshole so if you i mean I think that probably a lot of viewers are like familiar with that distinction, but maybe lay that out again and like, tell us what you make of that, that media chart.
3: Well, one, when the, the, uh, class engine got taken out of politics in the seventies, it yeah. was replaced by a purely, uh, effective politics that is detached from, uh, meaningful conditions that meant that people, wherever they found themselves in the social strata, were going to, uh, find themselves, uh, more and more compelled to uh, assert their identity through their politics. And that means that if you are somebody who uh, is part of the media, who had a certain experience of life and was acculturated to certain values, your commitment to the social liberal agenda, broadly spoken, is going to become more and more central to yourself and to the stuff that you put out. Which means that since that's the only real terrain of battle, the thing that defines the Democrats and Republicans – the Republican half of the, of the uh, viewership is going to, over time, notice that uh, and become more and more alienated from the center of uh, what's supposed to be the mainstream agreed-upon reality. They're going to define it par- as along partisan lines in a way that they didn't used to. Uh, and that only gets more uh, extended over time. And that means that there is a pressure on the other side among liberals to – Grab more and more onto the Democrat or onto the media and to invest more and more idea of the media as like part of their side, basically, which means that all the effort put into making the media say the right things and to be inclusive is literally designed only to backfire and increase reaction to it because you're not persuading anybody at this point. You're not offering a neutral arbitration of issues. You're only offering grist for a mill that is a sterile cultural conflict between the two parties that defines politics by either entrancing people or alienating them, but not by arranging them along class lines in any way.
0: All right. Well, Matt, uh, it's been great having you on. This is the last question for you, I promise. We're going to let you go after this. But speaking of the media, do you have any alternative media sources, podcasts, whatever to recommend people?
3: Uh, I mostly just scroll my Twitter feed. I got to say, uh, I don't, I, I don't, I don't like to, uh, I mean, I, I obviously I, I got the Jacobin, you know, you, you, I click on you guys. Oh, look at that. Get some articles going.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, you heard it here first from Matt right. Christmas. All to media Jacobin. bad
3: except wow. <laughs> Jacobin. Wow. Yes, of course. Everybody on my, yeah, everybody, all, all the, all the, all the buddies get together. Do some good media. Good work. All right,
0: thank you, Matt. That was All great. Right. Bye bye. Talk to you soon. Right. See
1: you, Matt. All right. All right.
0: Uh, that was very fun. Um, we are going to pivot now to our other guest. Um, we so, of course, as you guys know, this is usually the time when we would have Paul ab- uh, answer some labor questions, uh, but today we have a very special guest. He is Ernest Garrett, uh, the president of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees District Council. District Council 33, which represents public workers in Philly. Um, As far as I understand it, the union has a big contract fight coming up, and you all held a big rally earlier this week. Uh, So I'm going to turn it over to you and Paul to kind of get into the specifics of that.
1: How's it going, Ernest?
4: Hey, how are you, Paul?
1: Good. Um, So I want to start maybe for our listeners. Can you tell um, listeners, you know, what kind of workers does your union represent? And also, you know, what has the experience been like since uh, COVID-19 for your workers?
4: So we re- we uh, represent a wide range of workers, all the way from water department employees to sanitation workers to um, custodial workers at the airport, um, coroner's office, a uh, wide range of workers, all all um, all of the uh, blue collar workers, and for the city.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's it been like, I mean, since COVID-19 uh,
4: f- for these workers? Uh, it's been rough. It's been real rough. I mean, uh, you know, um, we don't have the luxury to work from home. Right. We we have, uh, you know, no one truly understood exactly the extent of how to protect yourself while working uh, through a pandemic. So um, you can't, you know, you can't social distance inside of a trash truck that's only five feet wide. Um, Many of these guys recycled COVID over and over because there were uh, no way to social distance. Um, We have uh, city workers. You know, a lot of people think that the water department is just individuals that turn water on and turn water off. We have guys that have to go 40 feet down into a sewer inside uh, 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 that's that's filled with human waste Mm. and aerosolized fecal matter. Which COVID is contract carried through, and with very little protection, but a facial mask, and it's one way in and it's one way out, and so uh, these guys were very afraid because they didn't. There was no studies done. There was no time to see if people were going to contract COVID through aerosolized fecal matter. Mm-hmm. Um, at our coroner's office, you know, you don't dead persons don't talk, so they don't come in saying whether or not they have the COVID virus or not. Uh, it's been, been very rough. Yeah. Our healthcare workers, our airport workers, I mean you name it, we have there's no other employer that has dealt dealt with COVID-19 in a manner in which we have. I myself contracted COVID-19 and mm-hmm. stayed in a hospital for 14 days. You know, right. 90% of my lungs were uh filled with ammonia. So I'm, you know, it's been rough. It's mm. been really rough.
1: And you know, what you said, it kind of reminded me of something I wasn't planning to ask, but even before COVID, like take sanitation workers, I think they've been ranked, they've always been ranked one of the most dangerous jobs you could have, even, I mean, more so than a police uh, police officer. I mean, besides COVID, could you talk about like a job like sanitation? What are, what are the daily dangers that they face on the job? The,
4: the, the sanitation worker is one of the most undervalued jobs. Uh, a lot of people think that it's easy to walk seven to 11 miles a day. You don't get a choice to decide whether you can pick up this trash or not. And what happens is these guys, they don't have the time to stop, examine the bag and see whether or not they're going to grab it. So often, especially with the, with the rise of opioid addiction in this city, they grabbing bags and, 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 and flinging them bags and being Mm. Pricked and poked by by needles, right. you know, and then they have to go through baseline testing with and wait to make sure that they haven't contracted another virus that 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 will uh, shortly end your life. Then, with the rise of of uh, of the housing market in Philadelphia, they have one of the most these contractors. There should be something filed in the city to stop contractors from using. The, the empty buckets as, as waste mm, dispensers. Right. So when these trash guys go and they grab this trash and they put it into the hopper and they compact it, these buckets explode. Uh, they don't have a name for them. They call them South Philly bombs. <laughs> you, you know, right. and, and we have thousands of pictures where they explode and you have human feces all over the hopper. Mm. But when they explode and they get aerosolized, you know what I mean? You're now... Again, at risk. Right. You know, the the sanitation worker, I I would ask anyone if you think that's an easy job. Try it. Try walking in 90 degree heat behind some of the most vile smell you could think of and and continue to 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 uh, service the citizens of Philadelphia with a smile on your face. Very difficult.
1: Right. And just imagine, I mean, two weeks without sanitation workers, let alone a month, two months, you know, what would happen to the city? Um, so, Absolutely. Yeah. So you all have a contract expiring. Um, so you you I think, starting negotiations or have been in negotiations. Um, can you kind of just talk about how, how are they going? What are some of the main demands that you are looking for out of this contract?
4: Well, our, our contract ends the end of this month. Um, we haven't sat down with the city yet. Um, I, my position is clear with the city. Uh, I will not accept anything other than uh, equality, equitable treatment for these men and women. Uh, I believe that's the reason why they put me in this position, and they didn't put me in this position to spin the wheel on a merry-go-round and, and let it stop where it stop and take that as mm. this. It. I mean, m- these men and women have worked through a pandemic willingly, right? You know. When they could have took the short route, like so many people, and said, you know what? Go ahead and lay me off. I'll go take that check over there. It's safer. I don't have to worry about the pandemic. I could be in the comforts of my home. And I could add to that trash that, that these men got to go pick up. Mm-hmm. But they came to work. And they and, and with, with the fears of taking this deadly disease onto their family, they continued to march on. So I've told the city, we have to straighten out some, you know, District Council 33, we have been treated, and, and 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 I believe we have been treated worse than human
2: hmm.
4: over the last twenty years. So we're asking for equitable treatment, an increase in health and welfare. We, we, we shouldn't be we should be treated as the city's most valuable asset. Right, but we're not. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm waiting for them to get back to me. Uh, time is ticking. And uh, it's a new it's a new rider on this horse. Right. That's right. (laughs) Well,
1: they will soon. If if they don't know now, they'll know soon. Um, Oh, go ahead. No,
4: I was just going to tell you, Paul. I have nothing to lose. Right. And I'm doing all this for them young guys like me that that, you know, men and women decide, you know, this is the line of work I want to be in. You know, no one is forced to throw trash. It's, it's a commitment that one makes to say, you know, I'm a proud sanitation worker. It's the heritage behind being a sanitation worker, especially for black people in this country. Mm-hmm. When, when they make a commitment, they also make a commitment to that I want to be able to raise my family. Right. I want to be able to send my sons to school. I'll do this today so my sons don't have to do this tomorrow, that they could go on to get higher education and be doctors and lawyers and things of that nature. So it's a commitment that these men and women make to do these jobs, you know, for for very little pay. Right. And I think the city should honor that and respect that and treat their most valued asset as something special and not something that you scraped off the bottom of your shoe. Right.
1: And, you know, and we bring it up a lot on this show, but I think a lot of people don't quite realize jobs like this. So good, stable union jobs. I mean, not just for black workers, but I think especially for black workers, I mean, it's like a critical lifeline. Like how many families have been able to send someone to college because of a job like this, even if they didn't go to college? Um, so people, I think, really need to realize that, you know, if you talk about Black Lives Matter, I mean, one of the most important aspects of that are unions like your your union. Um, so, you know, last Saturday, the union had a, a really great big rally. I think we have some pictures of it um, that we can show. Really great rally. And so almost exactly a year before this rally that we're showing on the screen, I think when I first actually met you it, exactly a year ago, there was another rally around hand and, uh, sanit- um, sanitation workers, hazard pay and PPE. So what do you think changed in this last year to make this rally so much more bigger? Cause the, you know, the one from a year ago wasn't nearly as big as this. So what changed in the last year do you think to make the membership, you know, more unified and, um, you know, participate more, make this rally bigger?
4: Well, I always say I'm a I'm an in-the-face type of guy. And I went out there and I looked people in the face and I say, listen, the days of union leaders just accepting uh, high paychecks and, and 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 fancy cars and wanting to wear a fancy suit, they're over. They're over. I want for you what I want for myself. But we're a team. We're a team. I'll be your voice, but I need you to be the body. I need you to be there with me, you know? And, um, you know, I I know that if you give people a belief, a belief in the union, then they'll fight for you. Wars for years have been fought over beliefs. And now I tell them, if you believe in this union, I'm ready to go to war to fight for your beliefs. You know, so that's why, you know, the people come out. Um, Mm -hmm. We had an estimated 1500, but we hope to have an estimated, if necessary, Mm 10,000. So I hope we don't have to have that problem. I hope that they understand. I'm not, I ain't, I'm not an old rodeo rider. I hope they understand. But if they want to go to war, and it is what it is.
1: Well, you have my number. I'll be there if they make that choice. Um, So what about for yourself? How long have you been in DC 33? And how how do you think the treatment of city workers has changed over time? Do you think it's gotten worse, better, the same?
4: You know, I've been a I've been with a uh, District Council 33 for 24 years, and um, it was it was one of the best things I ever did with my life. You know, I was I got out the military, didn't know which way I was going, um, tried a couple mm-hmm. of odd hide- jobs here and there. And uh, the city came through, and um, it allowed me to grow up, um, raise three wonderful sons. All, all have went on to graduate college, and my last one. And, and you know what saddens me is, the pay hasn't increased. Mm. It's, it's you know the average salary for a city worker is around a thousand dollars every two weeks, and in this city you cannot work for district council 33 as a man and buy a home the average homes in west philadelphia 250,000 kensington is now mm. 250,000 and up i mean i don't know where they expect us to live if this if this market inc- uh, continues to increase in the rate that it has right um you know we need fair wages so you know i'm not Angry at the city, I think that some elected officials have to make the hard decision and stop wasting money or giving tax breaks to to people that you know whether they pay a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, it ain't going to affect their bottom line, right? Give it, give it to the people that need it. Give it to the people that that make thirty five, forty thousand, fifty thousand that need help. You know, some of our people are homeless hmm. we had to open up a Eap in this building because we have members that work every day and can't afford to rent in this city wow that don't make sense
1: mm-hmm. you know so for the last question I mean you kind of just uh touched on this but you know public workers whether it's city workers you know I'm a public school teacher we're always told there's no money no money for raises for benefits for more staff or anything. So first of all, do you think that's true, that there's no money? And second of all, you know, what should cities like Philadelphia do in the future, you know, revenue-wise to make sure that they can pay their public workforce and for the, you know, the services that you all provide in a sustainable way?
4: I'm going to be honest with you, Paul, and I've said this a million times. I don't care where they get the money from. When the Philadelphia Eagles wanted to leave Philadelphia, they found a way to help them keep that money and build that stadium in South Philadelphia. Tasty Cake, hmm. one of those big employers, wanted to leave the city of Philadelphia. They they found a way to help them and restructure right. their, their incentives and move them down South Philadelphia. Let me tell you something. They can find a way to do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. They, they'll find a way. They, if they want to do something that's, that, that's uh, going to move them up that political ladder, they'll find the money. Let me tell you something. These men and women find a way to get up every day and come to work. The school teachers, it's a disgrace that they have three librarians and the school district, the whole district, three librarians. You you see what's going on in this city. You can't expect if a child is going to school and they're not getting a proper education and they're not being being reared right, the street's going to teach them. Mm-hmm. If the streets become their father. You see, we have m- kids that are committing murder at 14 and 15 years old. We have people that will go up to the prison to commit murder. Mm-hmm. They have to start educating in our youth first. Get them when they're young, because once they get 16, 17, 18, they're not listening to them. They ain't listening to me. Their parents It's probably at work trying to keep a roof over their head. So who else going to teach them? Right.
1: You know, I always say to people, I mean, because what you just point out is kind of the crisis we're facing. And I always point out, you know, take the average youth in Philadelphia. So they're not funding the schools right. You know, it's less and less likely they'll be able to go to college or for college. They're also cutting the, the trade school programs in the school. So now they can't, you know, even get like a good union job or now they're going to cut start cutting a sanitation jobs so like you really are trapping people and like what do you expect to come when you just keep cutting and cutting and cutting every option what do you expect is going to happen next and i think that's that's just what you spoke to
4: absolutely absolutely i think the city would be better served if they stop fighting the unions and and align themselves with the unions and see that you know our goal is to make sure Everyone is treated equal. You know, we don't want to bankrupt the city. We just mm-hmm. want to make sure that their workforce is is staffed properly, that teachers are equipped with the tools that they need, that sanitation workers can can work Monday through Friday and on the weekends take their kids to play baseball. So if you if you got time to spend with your kids, my mother used to always say, "Idle uh, idle mind is a devil's workshop." She said, yeah, "You know, kid ain't got nothing on his mind." you gonna start doing some foolishness, mm-hmm. and believe me, I know about doing dumb shit. I've done a lot of it. You know what I mean? But but you know, when you see better, you do better.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, there should be more teachers in school that 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 we should bring back home economics and 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 a uh, 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 shop class and some more activities after school. You got after school activities. They're not out there playing in the streets. Mm-hmm. They're by people that love them and wanna wanna get things right. So I think if the city wanna get it right, these organizations that are doing this to be a school teacher and what they pay, you got to love what you're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause it's not like you're uneducated. You could have took your education and went another route and, and said, you know what, I don't want to deal with kids. That's a passion mm-hmm. in what you guys do, you know? Just like it's a passion to be a sanitation worker, you know. Right. Just because you throw trash don't mean you should be treated like trash. Mm-hmm. You know? It's a passion to say, I'm gonna put on these coveralls and gri- go 60 feet down in the sewer to unclog a, 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 a sewer that's filled with everything, rats and everything, and it ain't nothing you gotta just sit there and let them rats run by your head. It takes a strong individual to do something like that. So right. I think if the city ever wanna you know, change what's going on across this country. They need to stop fighting the unions and get in line with the unions. Hmm.
1: Well said. And, you know, I saw Richard Hooker, brother from Teams Local Look with 623 in the comments, you know, and I'm going to reference what he's always saying about, you know, they called us all essential for a year. So now, now all these contracts are coming due. Now it's time to really show if you think we're essential, you got to pay us like we're essential. You got to, treat us like we're essential. So I really hope, you know, part of your fight is helping people realize, you know, if you didn't before appreciate sanitation workers or Amazon, you know, delivery drivers, hopefully the COVID has made people wake up to say, you know, these, these people really are essential. Um, So thank you so much for coming on and thank you for your fight. You know, I'll be, I'll be with you. Just hit me up when the next rally. Um, And so thanks for coming on President Garrett.
4: Absolutely. I appreciate you guys. And, uh, I'm going to make sure I'm a new fan of the, yeah. the COVID show, You know what I mean? Um, <laughs>
1: like and subscribe, you know.
4: <laughs> you, know you heard it from Ernest Garrett.
2: <laughs>
1: and, and we love to uh, have you back on, you know, in the future. I mean, as things develop, you know, we, we want to feature, you know, union leaders and union members.
4: Absolutely. Well, you're a friend of mine. Um, I like your style. You know what I mean? And uh, it was nice meeting uh, Miss Jen Pan. And we're here. Our doors are open for you. Anything we can do for you and your cause for justice and equality for working people, let us know.
0: Thank you, President Garrett.
4: All right, brother. Right, thanks. Bye.
0: That was a great talk. I always love having a union man on, obviously. Um, And I just want to point out something uh, about the rally pictures, which were amazing. Uh, So shout out to whoever took those photos. If on some off chance you happen to be watching, they're amazing. (laughs) Uh, But I noticed somebody was holding the classic I am a man sign. Um, And I love that. And I think that, you know, probably lots of Jacobin viewers know this. Uh, but that sign came from the Memphis sanitation strike. And I think, you know, that has kind of been lost in the general public. Uh, I think it's, you know, I think everybody knows it's connected to the civil rights movement. Um, but I think that sometimes people think it's just a kind of like generalized expression of dignity, which it is, of course, but it's also part of a sanitation strike. Uh, so right. just just to go back to what President Garrett was saying about, uh, you know, uh, the dignity of sanitation workers and, and what a tough job it is and, um, and uh, you know, how it how it's often and overlooked and it's essential
1: right and that strike i mean they were of course fighting over wages benefits but one of the things that triggered it was that two workers were killed in a trash truck you know and that Mm -hmm. kind of really galvanized the struggle but um Mm -hmm. yeah Ernest is great i mean with these union people you see why they're elected you know i would vote for Ernest. i would vote for (laughs) richard so same same you you can see why you know they're where they are
0: yeah so so richard's here in the chat hey richard
1: (laughs) Yep, you know, we're going to have to bring him back on soon, you know, yeah. it's going to be a fun summer. He's, There's a he's lot supposed
0: of, to be gearing up for his presidential campaign, of course, so right. he shouldn't be wasting time in the Jackman chat, but good good to see you.
1: He's probably asking for some donations in the chat, you know, <laughs> getting his uh, war chest built up. But yeah. <laughs> I heard, I don't know, Ernie might be his, Ernest Gare might be his uh, running mate, so.
0: There you go. I, I mean, I'd vote that ticket, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um well, I that was a great show. Um loved having Matt on. You know, he's he's a he's he's a great commentator as always. Um he of course also recommended that you all get a subscription to Jacobin. So, take it from Matt Crispin, uh Ernest Garrett. Uh good luck in the upcoming contract negotiations and any future rallies. Uh we we definitely will be following that. Paul, any last any last uh labor Paul comments or
1: Well, um, there's still time again. submit questions. I will try to answer uh more next time, and again, keep a you know look out There's a lot of contracts that are expiring in general um so you know any way you can go out to support a local union picket uh do so I think this summer is gonna be full of a lot of labor action. I hope
0: likewise. Um, and I also want to point out, actually, that uh, next week's show I think is going to be great. We're having Cedric Johnson on. Um, you guys right. probably all know and love him. Uh, if not, go check out his work in Jacobin and Nonsite and elsewhere. Um, that's going to be a really good talk. So I guess on that note, um, thanks for watching, and we will see you next week. All
1: right. Good night, everyone. Go Sixers. <laughs>